As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Bet that you don't want none. If you want some, come and get some. 500, let's lock it in on the next one. Greedy for it, I roll it out. BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at bteracing.com. Today's episode of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast is brought to you in part by IHRA. Quick update on the IHRA Sportsman Spectacular. Due to excessive rainfall this week and an unfavorable forecast for the weekend, officials with the IHRA and Darlington Dragway have canceled this weekend's IHRA Sportsman Spectacular presented by Haggerty and Mosier Engineering. The next IHRA Sportsman Spectacular, presented once again by Haggerty and Mosier Engineering, will be August 21st through the 23rd at MIR, that's Maryland International Raceway, Buds Creek, Maryland. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's cool hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss the Saturday Night Hooker and a crunchy rear. (laughs) More on that later. Um, In today's show, uh, this is super long. You probably already see that as you uh, you hit the download button, so I'll try to keep this introduction short. 
But uh, it's long because Jed and I had a lot to get to. It was a huge week in the world of sportsman drag racing for a, a variety of different reasons. But obviously the, the headline was the SFG $1.1 million race uh, up at US 131 Motorsports Park in Martin, Michigan. The story of the weekend without question was Steve Cisco, but there was more to the weekend than Cisco. We start the show by doing our best to recap that event. Um, from start to finish, uh, and some of our thoughts and, and takeaways on it, which is uh, overwhelmingly positive, as it should be. We follow that uh, by catching up with the man himself. What does it feel like to win $1.1 million in a race car, and then follow it up the next day by winning $100,000 in a different race car? There's only one man on earth that can tell us, and it is Steve Sisko. You will love this interview. If you can't do the entire two hours of this show, fast forward about, I don't know, 30 minutes to the Cisco interview. It is awesome. If you are not a Steve Cisco fan now, brace yourself. You will be by the end of this show. Uh, after that, we conclude talk of the, the SFG 1.1 million probably an hour in, and we go into the, the WFC, Big Jed and Steve Stites. Um, combined once again the 14th annual World Footbrake Challenge. Jed brings us up to speed on everything that happened in Bristol. They had a record turnout, 550 entrants in the biggest footbrake race on the planet. Jed will tell us all about that. We'll briefly touch on Kyle Seipel's California Gold Rush event in Sonoma, California. We'll close out with some NHRA news. There was a divisional event last weekend in Lebanon Valley, uh, as, and obviously the, uh, the NHRA professional series gets jump-started again this week, uh, although the, the future of that seems to be at least a little bit in doubt. We'll talk about that and run through everything else that's on our mind here on today's show. So without further ado, here's the show. All right, Jed, we've got a lot of ground to cover here. Um, had a huge weekend, week in a lot of cases for sportsman drag racing, big events all across the country, <clears throat> a lot of news, a lot of updates, uh, but absolutely no place to start but one. The SFG 1.1 million, US 131 Motorsports Park, Martin, Michigan. What a show. I don't know how close you were to this because as we'll get to a little bit later in the show, you had your hands full this weekend yourself as a promoter, obviously at the world Footbreak challenge. Were you able to follow along with 131 much at all? I wasn't Luke. Uh, you know, I was hearing bits and pieces and um, thankfully some folks took it upon themselves to message me here and there. Um, and I check my messages regular because I'm promoting an event. So try to stay on top of that because a lot of my customers that are at the race are messaging me so I was watching that stuff closely and a lot of people say a lot a few people took it upon themselves to message me kind of on the big day here's where it is here's who's down to how many and was helping me keep up with things I wasn't able to watch any of it but I could tell very quickly that it was a super successful show um, that it, it kind of went as planned if you will uh, seemed like their plan worked to perfection and, you know, then obviously was keeping up with who was winning as the rounds were clicking off based on just checking my messages. It was, uh, wasn't something I could watch closely, but it was, uh, so big that, that I was able to, to get messages and see what was happening kind of as it was happening. 
Jed, you know, and, and I think longtime listeners of the podcast know that I am not much of a, a live feed guy. Like my whole life is racing, right? The last thing that I want to do when I'm not at a racetrack is watch more racing. Like it, it's just never really turned the dial for me. And I know I'm in the minority there. On Saturday, I was, we had this HDMI cable from the computer to the, the biggest TV in the house. And it was on for hours. Like I was glued to it. I could not turn away. Mesmerized as I'm sure many of our listeners were. And I just can't say enough about the event, the SFG team, like just mad props all the way around. And we've, I've been critical of that staff in the past, which doesn't single them out. Like if you've listened to the show, we're critical of everybody. Like, I feel like that's kind of our, our, our spot. You know, if, if you, if you make what we deem to be a mistake, we'll call you out on it. But for this event, I mean, there was a lot of doubters and I'll, I'll admit I was part of that camp at one point, but in retrospect, watching this go off, I mean, you can nitpick and I know that there's a few people that have, but I feel like this was a really incredible event for basically for all the obvious reasons. I mean, first and foremost, it paid the biggest purse ever, but it doubled the biggest previous purse. I mean, the winner's purse was $1.1 million. And to the best of my knowledge, they made everything good. And on top of that, not only were they able to pay this unheard of purse, by all accounts, it looks as though Kyle Riley and the, the SFG team made significant profit on the event. Like, not only did they pull this off, they made money. That's awesome. And a big part of the reason I wasn't there personally, if we're going to be completely honest, there was a lot of factors that went into it. But part of it was because I went to this event last year, and it was a mess. I mean, I, I, I railed on it here. Like, every race ran till 3 or 4 in the morning. Like, it just was zero fun for me. And I said, I'm, I'm not doing that again. And this looked like a complete 180. I mean, there's still a ton of cars. It's still a, a huge uh, logistic nightmare. It's got to be, right? But the way that this was formatted, races were done at a decent hour each night. It was a marathon. It was a seven-day race to get four days in. But I think for having that many cars, I don't think that you could structure it much better. And specifically from... The racers that were in attendance, I didn't really hear any major negatives. And there was, we touched on it a little bit, there was a lot of potential for things to go off the rails here. I mean, anytime you've got 700 plus entries in a race, like that's a lot to, to keep up with, right? And you've got oh, all okay. this, these, these cheating threats coming in, like the atmosphere around racing just didn't feel good. And that all went seemingly at least from the outside as smoothly as you could have possibly hoped for like the the threats of cheating by 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 however they police that at the track it seemed mitigated it seemed like uh everyone there felt like <clears throat> it was an absolutely level playing field i didn't hear a lot of accusations like just that whole scene really seemed to quiet down at a at an event where i thought the potential was for it to really boil over and, and potentially get ugly and none of that happened like uh, I, uh, overall, like I said, I, I think you can nitpick bits and pieces and, and, and you can pull apart anything when you're at, a, at an event for seven days with 700 plus cars. But by and large, like hats off to Kyle Riley, to that SFG crew. This was, I actually said this on, a, on, a, on another podcast I was on yesterday, Jed, but I feel like, and I'm interested to hear your take on this too, because you've lived it. 
the the original million you know started with george howard and then and then to to randy folk that race even still today i feel like the but particularly 10 years ago when it was the only show in town the atmosphere the electricity there on saturday on million day is unmatched like the only thing in racing i've ever been a part of that i feel like is on par with it is monday at indy for for different reasons but it's a similar feeling right so actually being there at the track like that's the coolest feeling that i, I can remember so Jed, just overall like, i just feel like there was a lot of opportunity for things to go off the rails and seemingly all of that was was navigated uh, you know whether by circumstance luck or or complete you know, planning and, 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 and navigation. Like it was from the outside, at least this went as well as it could have possibly gone. So I just wanted to start there and say huge props to, to the SFG crew for making this happen at, at this level. Um, it, it was awesome to watch. Yeah. Luke, you know, looking at it, I think we're racing as a community that um, I think we do what the winners do. I think, when we see something that works well, whether it's on our car or race format or whatever, we do those things. Well, this was new. This was undone before it was risky, in my opinion. But there was a vision by Kyle Riley and, and AJ and, and the Brain Trust that it makes those decisions within SFG. And uh, by and large, it was that vision was played out to perfection. And, uh, you know, hats off to them. They, they took the carburetor and turned it upside down on the intake and and I thought, boy, you know, that might work that way, but it sure is risky, especially for the stage. But it was absolutely perfect. Job well done by them. I don't even think job well done describes it. The the people that I've seen comment on it have nothing but wonderful things to say. They seem to love the format. As you said, the races seem like they wrapped up at a decent time. You know, I heard a lot early in the week when things weren't getting finished or what, whatever the thought was there, I heard a lot of, you know, why are they quitting at 8.30 or 9 o'clock when they, they need to get some of this done? Yet the vision was, you know, already there by Kyle and AJ and everybody that made those decisions and they stuck to it and it worked absolutely perfect. And I think everyone loved it. Obviously, they had the biggest stage, so there was uh, there were more eyes on this than we're typically going to see on a bracket race of any kind. The whole world was watching. Uh, they had the opportunity to get nitpicked, as you mentioned, and get torn apart for any mistakes they made, and yet they still ran the play to perfection and got it done. So, as you said, mad props to them. Great job by those guys, and you know, congratulations on. Uh, the vision that they had and making it play out to absolute perfection. It, it had to feel good by Kyle and his team. Yeah, no, a big picture on this. I feel like starting, you know, with the, the, the early years of the original million with, with George Howard, and then obviously as it, as it adapted to, to Randy Folk, that atmosphere being there as a competitor at the million on Saturday at the million is just has always been electric and i don't think i've been a part of anything outside of perhaps like monday at indy for different reasons i don't think i've been a part of anything quite like that like it's just it's it's just cool to be a part of you wake up saturday morning and you know it's as something special is going to happen right 
And then in more recent years, <clears throat> as Kyle and Peter established the, the Fling brand, I feel like they've done an incredible job of, of two things specifically. They've done an incredible job of a lot of things. And I, and I still consider them kind of the gold standard of race promotion. But I feel as though, number one, they made the races such a social event where we all had to, there was a big fear of missing out if you weren't there being a part of it, right? And secondarily, uh, and, and you've been a big part of this, hands on, I feel like they took the production value of the event for those that weren't there on the live feed to another level, right? And, and to where it just felt like if you weren't there, it felt like you were, and, and it feels like you don't ever want to miss it again. And what I feel like this particular event did, and again, I wasn't there, but I feel like it combined those two worlds where it had to have the unbelievable electric atmosphere in real time. And then when you've got loans on the mic and, and Mark Walter doing what they do, like the at home production value, like it was very entertaining. It, it, and it took everything to another level that I, at least in my opinion, and, and maybe it's just strictly the result of the sheer magnitude of cash on the line. I felt like it transcended anything that we've seen in the sport. Like it, it was awesome for lack of a better word. It was absolutely awesome. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, and obviously I didn't get to watch it, but it was, it was big enough and electric enough that, that people uh, where I was, which we'll talk about later was tuned into it, you know, in between their runs and when they were out of the race, as I would go through the pits at times, for whatever reason, I, I could see people tuned in. They, everyone was excited about it. You know, the, the footbrake community showed up in big numbers in Bristol, but um, most of them were tuned in, whether it was on their phone or back at the trailer with a, a setup or the motorhome with a setup. So it was huge. The racing community was excited about it, whether they were there or not. And, and I can only think the way they ran it and pulled it off will, will lead itself. You know, they've already announced that next year is going to be 900000 to win uh, for whatever reason. That, that format's changing, or not the format, but the purse is changing a little bit. But that's still obviously a monster day in racing. And I think that what they did this past weekend um, from a production standpoint and facilitating the race is going to lead them to, if possible, bigger numbers next year. It certainly seems like people will be excited about being there. On the racetrack, without question, Steve Sisko steals the show. Uh, perhaps the, the most remarkable performance we've ever seen or, or will ever see in, in a in in bracket racing and sportsman racing, however you want to put it, not only did Cisco win the $1.1 million to win main event um, in driving Anthony Bertozzi's Chevy 2, Cisco came back the following day in another car and won the $100,000 to win sequel. <clears throat> he literally won two races bigger than 99.9% of us will ever win in back-to-back -back days including the largest person in history, did it in two different cars. And <clears throat> Steve's going to join us here momentarily. We recorded that interview before we recorded what we're, what we're doing right now. So we, I guess we can see the future, Jed. I <laughs> had no idea. Like this was not a, hey, I, got, I had the best car in the place and I just dialed it what it could run. That's not the way this went. 
Cisco drove the eyeballs out of this thing, made changes that most of us would not dare to make second round of a thousand dollar to win race. And he did it like late in the 1.1 million. <laughs> you just, you got to listen to the interview and, and I'm not going to spoil it, but other than to say Cisco ruled the weekend and, and, and Cisco ruled the year and you are going to love that interview. But before we get to it, let's just highlight some of the other big players, big names and huge performances from the weekend. A couple that stood out to me first off, the runner-up in the big show, the 1.1 million, Billy Swain. Billy was really impressive, specifically in the big show. I know he was down late in the first 100 grander. Uh, to be completely transparent, I, I didn't watch that nearly as closely as I watched the big race. In the big race, Bill Swain was double-entered, had his dragster in twice with five dragsters remaining. So I believe it was 10 cars total. That's well into the split. Like he's getting paid. And I think more impressive than that, he, he lost to Shane Carr on one entry that round, and then obviously took the other entry to the runner-up spot in, in the main event to Cisco. But what just being there in, in two cars is impressive enough, or in two entries is impressive enough. The manner in which he did it was unbelievable. I mean, the last literally, I, I feel confident saying the last six or seven times that Bill Swain staged, he was no worse than 005 on the tree and his car was really good. Like he was within a hundredth of the dial in either way. Like he was making just sick run after sick run after sick run, particularly with the stakes that high, I thought was incredibly impressive. And I talked about this with, with my wife as it was happening, Jed, you've been in this situation, obviously not, nobody's been in this situation for that, the kind of stakes that they were racing for, but when you're double entered in the same car late in an event, that that double entry is an advantage early, particularly in a race that's so spread out. It can become very tedious late. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and you just, things are getting hot that haven't gotten hot before. Like you're, you're in most cases running a car in a way that it was never designed to be run. <laughs> and that, and for a lot of us, we've probably never really done before, certainly not at that level. So there's just a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong, right? In, in the combination itself, the attrition begins to catch up. And then you just separate that and just go into the psychology of it. I know you've been there with this. As most, anyone that has is, that is double entered or has driven two cars or run two classes can attest to the fact that it is great and you have this feeling of invincibility when you're rolling deep with both of them. But the second that one wind light doesn't come on, the hardest round to win is the next one where you've got to come back. You know what I mean? The rug gets pulled out from under you and that's when you're racing for 800 bucks, not 800,000 bucks, right? Yeah. The, the ability that he had, cause you could easily see the wheels running off and you've seen it a hundred times. Somebody gets down to 20 and has two entries and at 10 is at the trailer, right? It's really, really difficult. And I think a big fact or potentially a big factor for Swain after he lost to Shane, when he came back the next round, he was on the buy run. So perhaps that gave him a round to kind of regroup. But the, rain, the, the way that he was rolling before and after, I'm not sure that he needed it. Like that was a really impressive performance. Yeah, like you said, like, late in the show when that happens and, and your wind light doesn't come on, especially after it has come on so many times during the race day. And when it doesn't, that's all 
that you can think about and you don't get a whole lot of time to recover. Uh, I think this happened where Billy lost his second entry and come back the next round, as you said, uh, with the one that he won. So sometimes that's going to be where you, in the early rounds, you might lose third round. You've got three hours to sit and think about it or two hours or whatever. Well, this way you've got just a few minutes and you know, your, your whole routine gets shaken up because they're in the late rounds. You're coming straight back to the lane. Somebody's probably got the fuel jug sitting there waiting, whatever. It's just the whole routine is mixed up and then your wind light doesn't come on. So it takes a lot of uh, mental capability to, to just gather yourself back up and get focused on what you were doing. And as we'll talk about, like Hunter Patton, I mean, stop me if you've heard this before, but Hunter goes to the semis, you know, I'm sure disappointed that he didn't get into that uh, nearly $800,000 final round, but still collected a monster payday. And he laid down, I believe, 12 for Swain in the semis and got seven change, if I remember correctly. So that's exactly you know, the way that went, yes. Poor old Hunter. I mean, that's a killer lap, a 12-pack, especially at that point in the show. And you you make the run you're trying to make, and you you get cut more than in half on your 12 pack. So Swain did have it together. Kudos to him for regathering himself after the coming up a little short there with one entry and getting it done. As you said, it's, it's more of an advantage in the early rounds. It can be a hindrance in the late rounds, but obviously it worked out very well for Bill. Hunter Patton. I just want to want to touch on because this is just another chapter in an incredible book of 2020. Obviously this, this shortened, oddity of a season and from a just purely financial standpoint we're in july i don't know that anyone has has put more money in the bank account from racing in history in a single season as hunter Patton has this year i mean just as a quick recap it's every week it's unbelievable uh he started the year winning a a 50 grander down in bell rose i believe uh won a couple of races at ardmore weren't huge money but you know it was really the first time kind of that was the first race where anybody got back after a couple of months off. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, he was deep in a race closer to home at Pine Valley wins the, uh, the 50 grand SFG event at Cedar Falls, Iowa is also runner up in a 25 grander that weekend um, goes to Galat fling where you were wins the dragster race, wins the MVP award is down to the semis and the hundred grander there. Um, what am I leaving out? Goes to Byron. We haven't recorded since Byron. The last day at Byron is uh, $60,000 to win because two guys got, com- got combined. Hunter wins that in Mikey Bloomfield's car. The week leading into the SFG Million, you think at some point, like, I don't care how good you are, how good runs you make, like, you're just going to get waylaid and, like, there's no way that he's going to cash big in the million, right? He's down to four cars in the biggest race in history. Just, it's an unbelievable run uh, to the likes that I don't know that we've seen. I mean, to me, this already mirrors – the Kenny Underwood 2018 season, and he's literally got four months left. Yeah, it's, it's super impressive, Luke. And, and Hunter is where you want to be, not uh, not from, a, um, a, I guess, a perception standpoint, because people, people will start accusing him of cheating, and this already happened. You know, they, they pissed the thing on him out and tore him down, all that stuff, and he's done this in two or three different cars. Hunter's a, a good young man, a fine young man that's living the dream. But good thing for him is he is 
elevated himself to the point where people want to see him lose. And that's where you want to be in racing. Now, see, it hadn't happened to Cisco yet. Cisco got 1.1 and then collected another 100,000. And everybody's happy for him, telling him how great he is. He's wonderful. Pat you on the back. Hunter, they're tired of that. So now people want to see him lose, and they want to find reasons why he's winning instead of them. He's got to be cheating. He's got to be doing something different than everybody else. But he's not. He's doing it honest. He's doing it with talent. He's had some luck. He'll be the first to tell you that. But he is. he has positioned himself to the point where people want to see him lose, and that's right where you want to get in this sport because that means you're doing it extremely well. So another great job by Hunter, a semifinal is certainly not what he wanted, but when he got that check, I'm sure it felt really darn good. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's well put. Uh, a couple other huge performances that stood out for me in the big show. Uh, this one's near and dear to your heart. He wasn't swapping feet. He was letting go of a button, but uh, Brian Cerruti put on a show off the bottom, Big Jed. Yeah, he did, uh, which is no surprise. Everybody knows Cerruti knows that, that he can swap feet. He'll roll it in deep stage. Uh, does extremely well when he chooses to do that on the foot brake. Got uh, not much gear in the car, so when he can leave on the trans brake, obviously it goes shallow and just got the car where it works really well. Makes really good decisions. He's got all the tools. Um, Brian can hold numbers. He can dial it and make a time trial. He can use the nitrous and work him way work his way down the, the racing surface. So uh, obviously he's got a heck of a story himself um went extremely deep in the, the spring fling million a couple of years ago car was stolen uh, never to be found again and a couple of good leads come in they find it he goes and gets it comes back home and still just doing his thing so Sarudi's a, a really good dude and great to see the bottom ball we're getting a mix i mean he really was seriously in the mix and um collected a good payday himself so Really proud for Brian. He, he deserves it. Yeah, Sarudi came through the, the no-box side um, with a final round win over Kevin Pollard, who obviously is, is no stranger to, exactly. to a big stage, and then advanced through, I want to say, at least two rounds of you know head-to-head -head competition with boxcars to advance to the, the door car semifinal. The overall uh, would have been six cars remaining and obviously got a good chunk of change out of that. Um, impressive performances as well. I thought I would note from a couple of big names that we would expect it from, but nonetheless, when you see him perform on that stage, it's impressive. Shane Carr was not only, um, was he down to that same round as Saruti, six cars total on the, uh, there's three dragsters left. He was also in, in, uh, in the door car, uh, I believe the round of the split, I want to say like 19 cars remaining total. So to have two entries in late in separate cars, uh, I don't know if you say that that's more impressive or, or less impressive. It's, it's as impressive as Billy Swain being in with two late as well. Uh, so shouts to Sugar, <clears throat> no surprise there. And Jeff Sarah, another big name that put on a big show. And Sarah's another one that fell victim to Billy Swain. The round, which I believe was five dragsters left, so 10 total. Uh, Jeff Sarah's 004 take eight no good against Swain. You know, Swain just made a, what seemed to be his common run for the day, but uh, Sarah, nothing, nothing to be ashamed of on that stage Four take eight. No good. Uh, Jeff always shows up on the big stages and, and the small stages and wherever else he's racing uh, lays down really good laps and uh, obviously come up a little short there, but getting in the, the way of Swain was, uh, there was no shame in that because he was just wrecking the place. And of course, what can you say about sugar? Uh, I think he flew up there Thursday. 
Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, just to just to run the big one, and then takes two entries deep into the race, uh, one in the door car, one in the dragster. Um, another very impressive performance by him. Sugar is a, you know, he's a guy that continues to show up on the big stages. He he doesn't he doesn't get to race probably quite as much as uh, as he wants to, but when he does, boy, he makes it count. Um, showed up huge there, and I'm not sure how that worked out financially the way it fell for him, but I think it was well worth his trip, and uh, he put himself again right in position to win another another big race. He's got million dollar wins he's got million dollar runner-ups and you know fifty thousand dollar wins sixty thousand dollar wins he's got everything in his uh in his memory bank there from big races but certainly um uh certainly put himself in position to collect this one and you know he's a legend in the sport so uh, I, was, I was proud to see sugar do well the 1.1 million dollar main event bookended by a pair of meager hundred thousand dollar to win races the first of which uh, was won by lane dickin over jeff ledford ledford in the roadster as, as always such race basically guarantees a dragster door car final uh so dickin it's actually interesting side note the sfg 1.1 <clears throat> definitely the podcast bump was in effect every winner has been a podcast guest <laughs> steve cisco lane dickin gary williams steve cisco again um G-Dub wins the, the opening 20 grander that actually was the one race that kind of got mixed up and didn't get completed until after the, the first 100 grander. Gary Williams claims that $20,000 with a final round victory over Anna Lise LeBlanc all the way in from New Hampshire. And then, of course, uh, as we'll discuss with Steve Cisco here shortly, the weekend wraps with Cisco returning to the winner's circle a day removed from his $1.1 million victory in Anthony Gertozzi's Chevy 2. He claims the $100,000 Sunday win driving uh, Bobby McCloskey's Camaro. Again, we'll talk to Steve more about that. Cisco's final round opponent on Sunday, another uh, good story. The, the Cisco story is awesome. You've got to stay tuned to listen to that. But uh, had Brandon Taylor won, uh, I I think that's as sentimental and as, and as feel good a story for different reasons, Big Jed. Uh, it was a year ago at this event that Brandon Taylor was rushed to the hospital with a heart attack. He's back. He's racing. He's as competitive as ever, as evidenced by advancing all the way to the final round of that $100,000 to win event uh, before falling to Steve Cisco. So that that's a feel good moment. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, as you said, Brandon went to the 525 there last year, this same time. And, uh, I'm not sure he even got to compete before he was taken to the hospital um, with a heart attack, and um, you know, it took him a while to get through that. It took him a little while to get home, get back here to Alabama, back to Roanoke, and obviously, uh, as you said, has made a, a full and perfect recovery, and he's back doing his thing. And uh, good to see BT make that work out too, and, and go to a final round. And Cisco uh, will even talk money about uh, about each of those races that he won so you'll you'll get to hear how well Brandon did and how well a lot of people did so uh, looking forward to, to everybody getting to hear that but good for um, good for BT to, to make another big final round there quick note we touched on some of the bigger names in the sport that advanced deep into the runnings uh, also just wanted to shout out the 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 Michigan locals uh, really held their own here I 
led, I guess, by Jeff Ledford, who, who checks both of those boxes. He's a big name in the sport and a Michigan loco, local, um, you know, as the runner up to, uh, to Lane Dickin in that first hundred grander. Billy Swain, another guy that um, maybe outside of that area may not be the most familiar name. If you have spent any time racing in the state of Michigan, you know who Bill Swain is, that he's been at the top of that game for a long time, uh, multiple track championships, multiple big dollar race wins. Um, but he definitely put on a show there. And then the, uh, the semifinalist in the, in the big show on the door car side, and by the name of Jason Hammerline, uh, another, you know, area Michigan racer. So I just, I felt like that was worth noting that uh, the, the locals really held serve and, uh, and, and made a heck of a showing for themselves. Jed, I've got a couple of just, odd random notes from the event and then we'll get to Cisco. First one, uh, 600 plus 700 plus entries, uh, throughout the week. It was essentially, um, seven days to complete four events. And to your point, like there was some talk early in the week, like, okay, when are we actually going to finish these races? But with the exception of that first 20 grander, like everything basically went the way that it was scheduled. And I think the schedule was, awesome i mean there are things about that format that i still don't love personally like we have that many cars with double entries it's just a marathon but if that's the format that you're going to adopt i i think it was handled in as good a manner as, as possible and the thing that really jumped out to me was where they broke the race up like the the hundred granders and the million were spread over two days and just completely from a logistical standpoint it, this probably is the, the most logical, sensical place to, to break. But they would run first round and the re-entry round one day, which is you know, 700 plus entries and then you know, half of that basically in the re-entry round. It's a full day. What I loved about it from a, from a competition standpoint is that everyone went into second round the next day on equal footing. Because I feel like particularly at these mega events where there's so many cars, that it is, I would never say it's, a, it's an advantage to lose first round, right? Like you want to advance to round two. But once you get to round two, I feel like it's a significant advantage to have participated in the re-entry round. I mean, essentially you made a run a couple hours ago, maybe three, four hours ago, and could be paired with an opponent that ran 12 hours ago. There's something to that, right? And the way that this was formatted when you don't run second round of the next day, like it puts everybody back on the same plane. Like there is zero advantage to losing, re-entering and getting that extra run. And I don't know that that part of it was necessarily thought out in advance, but the way that this played out, it mitigated that advantage or maybe perceived advantage. Like I just, I liked that part of it, which is just a random odd note that I'll throw in. The other one I wanted to touch on, Jed, and I want to get your feedback on this. I did see a little bit of commotion, and I figured there would be just when I saw this on the flyer. And this isn't a completely new idea, but it certainly had never been done at these stakes. So I believe it was coming into round four. They had, they call it the SFG jackpot. There's a random drawing. You could, if you had been eliminated in the re-entry round, second round, or third round, you buy basically a $250 ticket. Eight names were drawn, eight door car names were drawn, eight dragster names were drawn to essentially get back into the event. Now, they kept those racers separate. So those eight ran each other, then the four ran each other, then the two ran each other, and there was one dragster, one door car that got put back into the show essentially in round seven, which 
should have been the split round. I think it may have ended up being one round before the split. I, I'm not 100% sure on that. I think it was the split round. Um, and, and the way that they did it was actually kind of cool because outside of the eight names, I think there was 17 more that got drawn for $1,000. Uh, at first thought, like I'm a, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a purist. So I cringe at like just adding things to the event like this. On the flip side, if I'm Kyle Riley, like you can do quick math and see that this addition probably makes close to six figures for the promoter, assuming that it was, and I would assume just about everybody that's out third round is buying this extra ticket. If I'm the promoter and I'm guaranteeing $1.1 million coming in and I've got an opportunity to make, to, to, to bring in some of that money, like almost guaranteed, I'd sign up for that. So I don't fault him a bit. I'm just curious your thoughts on, on this addition, because I feel like, like initially there was a ton of pushback on buybacks on re-entries and then we all kind of got used to it. Is this something that we're going to see at a widespread level and will the racers accept that? Well, first, before I get into that, Luke, I want to, I want to go back to the, the, the discussion you had about removing the re-entry advantage. Okay. Sure. I mean, I'm not here to argue with you, man, because, you know, that's not what we do. But, I mean, these cars have the best stuff. They got the best carburetors, best converters, best tires, best everything. These cars move thousands over when their weather pattern's consistent. They move thousands over days of racing. There's no re-entry advantage. That's 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 perception and it's not there it's not reality so i understand where you're headed with that and i get that thought and nobody really wants to race a guy that just went down the track just in case there was a change but don't let nobody let that get in your head because you're on, on a on a typical race jet i i agree when there's seven eight hundred entrants and after winning first round, it may be 12 hours before you go down the racetrack. I think there's something to it. Yeah, it could be, but it isn't. But anyway, we'll move on to the jackpot discussion. Fair enough. Uh, All right. Not a fan. Not a fan. Uh, I do think it was a cool idea. And I think the way they did it and held them separate was the right way to do it if you're going to do it. And I like that because you're just adding that one car in, but you're giving many people a chance, which definitely increases ticket sales. So very well thought out by Kyle and his team, whomever come up with that idea. It was a great idea. Um, but it's, I am, I'm a flip flopper here. Uh, when I go to a race, I, that would not keep me from going to the race whatsoever. Had I known it up front, I still go. If I'm out, I want me one of those tickets. Sure. If I'm in, it's the worst idea ever. <laughs> I am a flip flopper. I, I guilty as charged. And those of you sitting out there listening, saying you're not that person. Okay. Whatever. You're that. Person. What, do you, what do you think about buybacks, Jed? Ask me after first round. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I got all these cars while they haven't buybacks. <laughs> I heard a lot of that over the weekend myself, but at any rate, I, uh, I'm not a huge fan of that format, uh, but I totally get it. And I ain't ever guaranteed 1.1 million. So as you said, which was very well put, if I'm guaranteeing 1.1 million, y'all just sit back and let me do what I got to do 
to make this work because <laughs> somebody I think can get a big check. Yeah, I, I would agree. Like, I, I don't fault them a bit for adopting this. And at the same time, I, I hope it doesn't stick. Yeah, I don't want to see it in every race by any means. But, you know, if it's got to happen to make $1 million guarantees, then, you know, so be it. Let, sure. Let's do whatever you got to do. All right. We've gas bagged enough, Big Jed. We've got the man himself waiting on the line. Let's hear from $1.1 million champion. Steve Sisko. Right, joining us now is the man of the hour, the week, the year. It's the most impressive performance of, in the history of sportsman bracket racing, probably. It's Steve Sisko, winner of the, he's, he's bracket racing's latest millionaire, bracket racing's first millionaire. Winner of the SFG 1.1 million, and then uh, obviously, as legend would have it, uh, followed it up with another $100,000 victory the next day. Steve, Dumbest question first. How are you? Doing pretty good. Tired. (laughs) (laughs) No complaints. Is it from tired from counting money or weighing it? Or I mean, what are you tired from? (laughs) Oh, I made a joke the other day on Jordan White's thing that I put, uh, I couldn't sleep. So I put $400,000 and hundred dollar bills in my pillowcase and I took them out and about 221,000 was comfortable. (laughs) <laughs> so I, 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 told, I told my i told my leaves me like 179,000 to blow on raffles <laughs> <laughs> i love it you're the only guy who can joke like that right now in the, in the history of the sports that's good stuff steve I, I watched on the live feed for the last several rounds of the the million itself so it it felt like i was there but there's a lot left in the cracks uh, in terms of we're seeing ETs on the scoreboards. I know most of the players that are still in, but I don't really know the story. And you've probably told it a hundred times. I doubt that you're getting sick of it yet, but (laughs) we're here for the story. So I guess the biggest question first is as let's just focus on, on the 1.1 million first. As that winds down, as the initial split agreement's been made, like what are you feeling round to round? And is there, just because I feel like there is a point, I guess when you make the initial split, like, okay, there's like this sense of relief that everyone's getting paid. And, but you still realize like how much enormous money is on the table. And then as it progressed, I would, like that feeling has to change somewhat because Obviously, no matter what, your, your take-home is going up, but at the same time, the stakes continue to increase. So at, at any point, did the money really become a factor? Like, how did that feel? Um, well, obviously, you want to get to the split round. Um, I've never – that was like the goal for, for the last 25 years going to these races was, sure. to, man, I hope I get to that point where – I'm in that crowd where people decide to like what we're racing for, where it's crazy money. And when I got to that point, I didn't even want to be involved in it. So I didn't, I, I didn't let, I don't know what they were talking about. I know that one guy had two entries and he had to buy so he wanted a little more money. And I just figured like, what's my point going to be? There's 18 other, or actually there's only Shane had two entries too. So there's really only what 16 of us that have a say. And I'm like, I'm just going to, whatever it is, it is. I don't care. 
And I just figured if I beat everybody, it doesn't matter anyway. So I'll just get the most they, they're giving us. But so I kind of, I don't even know what they got that round because I just really? kind of walked away. Yeah. Cause in my mind, I don't know what they were talking about with numbers. Cause you know, AJ had the, everything written down. Everybody was crowded around, you know, there's 40 people there when there should be, you know, 20. And I, um, I was hearing like, you know, five rows deep, I'm hearing what the numbers are, but they're not making sense to me. And I just figured to myself, like, why well, get involved? And I just walked away. And when they told me we're ready to go, we got started racing. So I really don't know what we got that round, but I knew it was going to be a lot more than it's supposed to be. Sure. So, sure. Who was speaking yeah. on your behalf? Um, I had Laboose up there with me because I figured he would, he wasn't in the race, obviously, and he's been in those positions. So I figured, why should I bother getting off of my game plan? Just let him deal with it. But we really didn't get involved. We just let it go. And, and then um, I just made sure that Johnny, uh, the only people I really wanted by me in the lanes other than people that were, you know, riding by were my wife and, and John and, and Brittany were the only people I wanted around because I didn't want to be bothered. But I knew what we were racing for for the final, but I never really paid attention what the rounds were. Really? Because, like I said, if you beat everybody, it doesn't make a difference. Just take the most they give you. It's a good strategy, a good outlook. I like it. I think we could all learn from that. <laughs> what I mean, particularly, maybe it's it's really the final. Like I just remember when we pulled to the staging lanes in in Vegas for the final of the Spring Fling Million, and same deal. We had we had made the the split agreement several rounds before it was set, so there was never really a reason to revisit it. But I just remember standing by my car in the final, and Peter Biondo walks up and says, "Hey, just want to remind you, you guys got 180 left here." And I had to take a breath because I thought, "Holy, yeah!" Like I mean, you knew it, but you, and what you guys had on the table was like four times that, maybe more, right? Like, uh, it, it, was there a time when that set in and whoa right well I, like i said uh, getting into the story like i, I the car you know had issues i it, it was rolling in on me a little deep so i i um i wasn't setting up killer on the tree because i was afraid it would roll in a little and turn it red and i had the rear end problem so when i would come back to the trailer i just let Lindsay. Lindsay knows what she's doing she's i hand her time slip i take my clothes off i take the slip back from her I just look and see what it was running that run because it was never the same. And, and then I would play everything out in my head. So when I went to the lanes, I didn't care. But when we got to the, after I won the semis, they stopped us on the return road. And I remember telling a guy that I ran, uh, he, we got out, he was smiling, happy, thankfully he wasn't, you know, mad, obviously. But I remember shaking his head and I said, man, I'm sorry. I said, but a hundred K for the semis isn't a bad day. And, and he smiled. So I drove, you know, after they looked at our cars, I drove back to the trailer and I remember I was calm. I never, I'm never nervous as it is, but I was calm all day. And then I remember John saying to me, he's like, all right, so it's $493,500 to win and two fifty runner up. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And he's like, are you going to do anything else if he comes up to you? I'm like, well, I don't think I want to. I said, because I think 200 and where I said, where are you going to lose a racing at $250,000? And he's like, well, whatever you want to do is fine. And then I pull in the lanes and everybody's like, no, you guys got to chop it up. You know, they got to make it closer. And in my mind, I'm still saying like it's $250,000. That's a lot of money to lose. Like I'm good with that. And then 
they added together and uh, Tommy Cable was with us also. He was the other, the other person I didn't mind being with us. And he adds it together and he's like, you guys got 743,500 or whatever it is. And as soon as he said that, I'm like, holy shit, that's a lot of money. So <laughs> the guy said, you got, you want to make it 400 to win? And I'm like, so it was 400 and 343.5. And I said, yeah, I'm fine with that. And I just remember looking at Lindsay. I'm like, I said, shit, I'm like, win or lose, we just scored. But like, again, I, I didn't, if nobody said anything, I would have just ran for the 493. I was, I was content with getting 250 if I lost. Yeah, I mean, wow. just, yeah, was, I, I can't I mean, even really wrap my mind that's around a, That's a wonderful payday, and, and you wasn't letting the, the money get to you. <laughs> well, I mean, but so my question, you've kind of answered it, but the, my, the question I had was at what point, it was a two-part question, what point in the race did you start thinking about the money, and at what point did you stop thinking about it? But it sounds like you kind of had that in reverse. I never really cared about the money, because like I said, it was just, I, like I said, I never, I'm never nervous in a race car, and for some reason, like looking back, I was more comfortable there and I was racing a car that I had to I had plans figured out in my head like what's it going to run if it feels like this and what am I going to dial I not, I need to be able to go at least three under is my goal because I didn't know what it was going to feel like so if it felt bad maybe I could go one under if it felt good I could go three under maybe four under like those were the things I had to play it out and I just I was so calm and confident that I was going to win, even though I wasn't trying to set up double O and I had the drive, I wasn't making time shots. It was just one of those crazy days. With your car, obviously throwing you a little curveball there. You, you've told us off air that the, the ring gear had eight teeth missing when Anthony took a picture of it and sent it to you after the race. Uh, so did the, did your opponent, did it line up for your strategy where you, were you facing mostly door cars, Steve, or did you get some dragsters where you just really had to had to buckle down and, and get real discipline on the dial, or how was that working out for you? Because with a torn up car like that, it seemed like it needs to work out for you in the other lane too. All right, I'm gonna. It's this is gonna be a long answer because I'm gonna start from the beginning. Anthony's car went like six, seventeen, eighteen, or nineteen, or would have gone, I should say, every run the first three or four days. When I came out for second round on Saturday, I ran a guy with a roadster that was dialed 580s. I dialed 520 and believed I was going, I'm sorry, I dialed 620 and believed I could go 618. And the guy's one red and I go 624 with a zero. And it felt funny when I left. It still did a wheel stand, but it felt funny. So when I came back to the trailer, I told Lindsay that, that was luck that I won. I mean, I'm losing to anybody as a green light there. I said, but I don't know what to do. I said, I feel like it was starting to spin the tires in the air, like it was trying to unload it on the wheelie bars. So I'm thinking that I got a tire issue. So I raised the wheelie bars. I tightened the shocks up a little. I loosened the front up some. And then the next round when they called us, I told her, I said, I'm going to dial up to a 26. Because if it still feels the same way, nothing changed. I feel like I could go at least that 24. But in my mind, there's a chance I still could go an 18 or a 19. And I think I just told her, I said, I'm going to, I can't set up tight on the tree because I'm afraid if it rolls in a little deep on me, but I got to be aggressive at the finish line. And I think the next round I had like a 580 or 90 car. 
and I, I took three thou or something like that against him. The next round I had another fast car and or like a 550 car and I was dialed up again and I think it was seven thou. Then I made decisions where I didn't kill enough and I would drop people and I'd give them 11 thou stripe and they'd run under. And it was like every, every situation I played out in my head where cars should be, they were exactly right. And if they weren't, it was an easy decision for me to just drop. And every decision was correct. But now I get, I get to fifth, sixth round, and it doesn't even feel like it does a wheel stand. And it leaves and it goes to the left. I come back and I see, I see little Laboose and I told him, I'm like, I don't know if these tires are good. I know Anthony don't have old tires on the car, but I'm like, they're Mickey Thompson's. Last time I drove it at Hoosiers, I, don't, I doubt he put used tires, but man, it's spinning the tire. So we go to buy brand new tires for it, and they don't have any. So John's spinning the tires while it's jacked up, looking at wear holes, and he doesn't tell me, but he could feel the rears like crunchy, but he doesn't tell me. So he just asked me. <laughs> I, love, like, well, what do you I love that description. <laughs> yeah. So, so he tells me, he said, what do you, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, why don't we put, I said, I'm holding, I could be holding 600s if it makes a good run. So why don't we put weight in the trunk and we'll let some air out of the tires and I feel like it would hook better. Well, we put like 60 pounds in the trunk between the batteries and the taillights. And I let a pound of air out of the tires. And the next two rounds at 60 foot with the back wheels at a crazy wheel stands, but it's still vibrating. Well, for some reason, I never shut that car off because the neutral safety doesn't work. It only works if it's in park. So I never shut the car off because you have to come to a complete stop to start it. Well, for some reason, I go through the finish line that round and I shut the ignition off. And in the shutdown area, the car is so noisy. And I'm like, holy shit, this thing is with the car running. You don't hear it. But the next round, as I make a 180 degree turn to get into the staging lanes, it's trying to lock up. And I'm not telling anybody. So John's not telling me that it's broken. And I'm not telling him I think it's broken. So we're both keeping a secret to each other. <laughs> and I broke it after the final because I went through the scoreboards. I made a K turn. They shut the lights off. I stopped, I put it in low gear, and I was going to make a six-second pass back at the crowd, and it shifted, and I think it broke when it shifted. It started getting all noisy. And when we pushed it out of the winter circle picture, it was locking up. So that was the last wow. run I was making on it. Wow. Hold on, let's back up. For <laughs> seventh round of the 1.1 million, you put 60 pounds in the trunk? Did I hear that right? Yeah, six, so, so we put 60 pounds in the trunk, and I told him, I said, I'm holding – Five, six anyway. So who cares? I'm driving the finish line aggressively. So if we put 60 pounds in it, I, we, he, we, we were guessing it was 50 to 60 pounds. I said, if we put 50 or 60 pounds in it, let's just call that four hundredths. I know in quarter mile, you would call it a hundredth, of, you know, but I said, let's just call it 40 pounds or four hundredths. I said, if I could go 626 and I'm still dialing 620. I think it was about 631 that round. I said, I could still keep the same dial. And if it feels bad, I might still run the same what I'm dialed. If it feels good, I'm still going to go fast. So I put 60 pounds in and I dialed up a bunch and, and I just went with it. I mean, I, I wasn't losing. It didn't, you know what I mean? Like it didn't matter what I did. I, my dialing went from 618 to 631 in one race for an eighth mile race. So, you know what I mean? I was just driving it and, earning the rounds I felt 
even though on paper my lights might not look killer, but I, don't, I think I was 29 in the semis, but I think I was like 17, 17, 13, 13, maybe a 12 or 11. I think I might have been double O twice, but I wasn't, it wasn't like I was double O and dead on every run, but I was driving the right spots and, you know, by being out in front of people, I think I made them run it a little farther where if I wasn't running under, maybe they would have been able to, you know, see that and kill some more. So I, I don't know. Everything worked out right. I just, I feel like I earned it. Like I, I felt like I was 19 again and I was just driving cars that you didn't know what they were going to Steve, I'm, I am so glad that you are here to tell the story because I could tell just watching from live feed, like, I don't think your dial-in was moving a ton, but the mile an hour was moving a lot. Like it was, it was pretty apparent that you were holding more than, than typical. I had, well, that's, why, that's why the 60 pounds worked out perfect because when I put <laughs> the 60 pound and I wasn't holding as much anymore. So the dial-in right. looked like it was good. <laughs> it's just, it's incredible, man. You can say right place, right time, you know, all that you want. Like this is a hell of a testament to your ability behind the wheel. Like there are not many people that could do this. And in this day and age, like, I mean, this is literally what I teach on this is bracket racing. Like in this day and age that the packages are so precise, like it's really difficult to hold and win. Like our cars are better than we are just pretty much go make a time run. That wasn't an option here. And you were, you know, I, I'm sure there's some breaks along the way that you mentioned, but by and large, like you're just driving the eyeballs out of the thing to win the biggest race in history. Like it's, it's an incredible story. With confidence. Cause I told you I wasn't losing. Yeah. I believe you. <laughs> I hope I win this round. You know, like I'm beating this guy. It wasn't like, Unbelievable, man. Congratulations all the way around. Just an incredible performance. And to be completely honest, Steve, you're making me feel like a dick. I didn't go because, in large part, because I've got a Vega that I just haven't got to where it wants to, where I want it to be yet. And I didn't feel like it was competitive. I could look at your logbook. I'm pretty sure my Vega was better. Like, Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure every car I raced was better than what I, what I was driving. And not nothing against Anthony or his car. It was just that sure. day. Every time I drive that car, it's so much fun and it's awesome. That was actually a, another thread that I wanted to pull on just in, in general terms. Like I, I can imagine, and I've had a really brief taste of it, but share for the listeners, what's it like to drive for Anthony Bertozzi? Oh, it's like driving for yourself because there's no, there's no pressure. Um, obviously, because you know he doesn't really – I mean, he wants you to win, but he doesn't care. You know, like he does care, but it's not going to break him – break his heart if something – you make a bad decision. It's just it's just so, so easy. He's probably the easiest person for me to drive for only because he just trusts you. You do whatever you want to do. Yeah, it's obviously um, when you said you just kind of walked away from the split and you, you didn't want to discuss that, I, I, I assumed that – Anthony was going to be the guy doing it. <laughs> His other driver was there with you uh, walking through those steps. And obviously he was maybe in the background or whatever, but he, he was not leading the charge. That, I think that says a lot about who he is and, and where he fits well, in the, the day's action. Well, Anthony wasn't there. Oh, well, that, that yeah, makes so, it no, even more well, difficult it, for him to get involved. Yeah, the only the only people that came up with that trailer was – was Laboose and Brittany and then Cable flew in 
and that was the four cars. I, you know, I had the Chevy two, John had a dragster and a vet and then, and Tom Cable ran the other dragster. But Anthony wasn't there, but it's easy too, because you know, Anthony, if, if I wanted to split it down the middle, I don't think he would care. And if I had the balls to race for 1.1 million and 55,000 and I lost, he'd laugh about it. You know what I mean? He would, he would be more proud that you had the guts to say that than care about the money. Yeah, he is a cool dude, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely for sure. Once the uh, once the big show is in the books, I can just imagine the elation, the feeling, the party. Um, did the thought cross your mind to just scrap Sunday altogether? Like, was that ever a, a thought? Like, hell with this, it's not going to get any better, I'll just go home? Well, Well, no, because I had two entries in. Mm-hmm. but and it is a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> yeah but i don't care what races the sunday race is always dead because who wants to race for less than you race for the day before you're right even if yeah. it was five hundred thousand it would have felt like it was a small race but <laughs> i um it, it was one of the things like well you know me that i'm, I'm not a partier i'm not going to sit there and get drunk i'm not gonna so after the final we hung out around the winter circle area burnout area probably till 1.30 maybe. And then I drove the car over to the trailer. And there was only uh, Terrell Sinkler, uh, Hunter Patton came over. It was Cable, Blaboose, Lindsay, and Brittany. We just sat there and we heated up some gas station pizza and some other stuff that they brought out. And we just sat there. I wasn't drinking. It was, you know, we stayed out till like three in the morning. So I had I I went to bed at five o'clock in the morning after text messaging people, and I woke up at eight o'clock. I took a shower. I heard cars were running. I'm like, well, I might as well just go warm the car up and get ready. And I pull in the lanes with. I was bringing Bobby's car from day one. Anthony told me to drive the other one. I said, well, that's great because I just won an entry in a raffle. So I and uh, I get Gage Birch, and I don't even stage. We're almost dialed heads up, and I get timed out because <laughs> I never even lit the bottom bolt. But the second entry lasted the whole day. Wow. I, I got to know, Steve, and, and I don't need numbers, but having won the biggest race, the, the largest paying race in the history of the sport, hours earlier, if you will, did that factor into your decision when it come time to, to talk about cutting up the 100K? Did, I mean, do you even care at that point, or are you still like, you know, I'm still on deals here with the car owner or whatever so i need to get what i can get or or does it, is well, it just like the big race you really don't even care well there's two ways to look at it i could be a dick and not want to split at all but i don't want to be that guy so sure. yes i won a lot of money the night before but i'm also not greedy so i felt i think there was nine cars left when we started cutting up the 100k and i had the buy run and we we set a you know, we set it down from, you know, winner down to nine cars. And I just felt, again, like I felt like I was going to win. I was so comfortable. Bobby's car is stupid consistent. It, I had one dumb run all weekend, but that car ran with, I could have went like a 48 with a, a high 48 to like a 50 with a zero over like whatever, 30 runs, 50 runs, whatever the hell I made. It was crazy. So I didn't think I was going to lose, but at the same point, I want to guarantee myself as much money so I could give him a lot of money too. So 
we uh, they broke it down where it was fifty thousand and forty or fifty and twenty, and then me and Brandon made it forty and thirty. Plus, they gave me four grand for having the buy run that one round, so I wound up with forty four thousand. So Bobby was still happy, you know. I won more money than the car is worth. So, you know, how can you go wrong? <laughs> Not a bad way to look at it. Right. It, it, I wonder if that could ever be said. Like, you you obviously won more money in two days than either of the cars that you were driving could be worth. Like, that, <laughs> that's got to be a record of some sort, right? Well, well, that's, well, that's what I was joking about. You'll go back to last year. When Gage run with the, won with the Ranger, I mean – it's a 650 car, so it's a what's it? It's a 10 second quarter mile. So what's that truck worth? 12, 14, 15, 10, 20? Like it ain't worth more than 20. Bobby's car is not worth more than 20. Anthony's car maybe because it's faster and it's a Nova might be worth 25 or 30. So it's not like you need to have the hundred thousand dollar dragster that goes 450s or faster. No, but you know it doesn't hurt when Steve Cisco is wheeling it. Instead of me, so you know that they're, they're, that's part of the equation. Well, I always felt like I could do it. The funny part is, I hear people telling me that, uh, you know, I, I hear through the grapevine that a guy won two days in a row that they never heard of before, and I just laugh because the people that are saying that are the young kids that they weren't. Would be considered your heyday, I guess, but uh, you really haven't quit winning, though, Steve. <laughs> you haven't yet, I anyway. I, I don't race a lot anymore, so it feels good when I win now. <laughs> Steve, what are you going to do with the money? Um, well, the check is still in my kitchen cabinet. I guess I, maybe this weekend I'll go to the bank and I'll deposit it. and Or, yeah, just deposit it. And if we need to buy something, we buy it. If not, it sits there. I'm not, get I'm not a fancy guy. It's not like I'm going to go out and buy you know, fancy clothes or a fancy car. What we drive is nice. Or we, you know, our house is nice. I, I'm not, I'm not looking to become, you know, look the part. I can say the way I am. Yeah, but come on, Steve. I mean, this is not like you just, you know, collected $3,200 at a five grander. I mean, the Vega, the, the super sweet Vega that you haven't put out on the big stage yet. I might need a converter maybe for that. So it's going to be easier to buy a converter. I don't uh, mind spending 800 for a converter, even if it's wrong. I mean, what about some carbon interior? I mean, maybe you send it and just get a little upgrade that you wasn't going to do otherwise. Surely it gets an upgrade of some kind. No, you know what I thought? I want to buy a steel hatch for it. So I don't have to, a fiberglass. I want to, I don't want Zeus. <laughs> maybe a steel hatch. I love it. The guy just won the biggest race, the highest paying race in history, and he, his only desire is to get a steel hatch for his Vega. You should live here. It. You should be from I Alabama. Got a, I got a nice house, nice cars, an awesome wife. I don't. What else I need? And yesterday, to boot, how my, how good my luck is. Yesterday, I stopped at McDonald's and went through the drive-through, and I got a ten-piece chicken McNugget meal, and I had eleven nuggets in it. <laughs> what a streak you're on. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. It's 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 still going. <laughs> all right have you gone back to work yet steve oh yeah i i got home monday at like 8 30 at night i woke up at 5 30 tuesday morning Lindsay left for work i took a shower and i was all set to go to work and i called text all but i'm like listen if it's not busy if you don't need me i'm tired 
my eyes are burning. And he just told me, yeah, stay home, coming tomorrow. So I went back to work Wednesday. I took one day off, and that was it. Not too bad. So to celebrate, my man took one day off work. The The check is in the drawer in the kitchen. Like, I, I love it, man. It, this is, I'm so glad you're on here. This is such a breath of fresh air. <laughs> I never, I never was the type of person, if I won anything, I never brag about, other than like this race here, I was posting those checks on Facebook, because how do you not? Like I want the people that are on Facebook that I went to school with that knew I raced and thought like this guy's just blowing his life away racing cars. Not to brag, but I want them to show like I accomplished this. But I never was the one to brag about stuff. I wouldn't, you know, other than if you were my close friend or my family, you didn't know if I won something because I, I don't. Uh, obviously, the money's nice, but money doesn't change anything. Like, yeah, I could buy something, but I don't. Uh, I'm not gonna change who I am. Man, he's got everything that he needs. I love it. I love it, Steve. Congratulations, man! Thank you so much for taking the time to come on here with us to tell the story. Because I would imagine the vast majority of our listeners are just like me and didn't have any idea what all went into specifically the, the, the main event win. Um, and just, man, I don't know. I, I guess this is my last question for you. Like, has the gravity of this set in? Like, I mean, obviously this is something that you're going to be on a rocking chair in 40 years talking about. Right. And, and everybody's going to want to listen. This is this, performance this weekend is is gonna go down in the folklore of, of bracket racing history like has it sunk in the magnitude of what you've accomplished I, I think about it like how you just explained it but again like i'm still the guy that wakes up in the morning i'm still going to work in inventory and junk cars and making deliveries and driving the rollback if they need me it's not like so in a, a part of me is like i holy shit what i just accomplished crazy but the other part of me is like, there was 700 cars there. Somebody was going to win. And that day it was me. So it, it's, you know what I mean? Like everybody had a shot and I was just the one that got lucky enough to, to be able to celebrate at the end of the night. So yeah, I mean, looking at it, yeah, it's crazy. The feeling of winning in front of those people has been the dream of mine. You know, it's not like winning a car or winning 10 granders. This was bigger and the money, yes, it's a lot, but the thing is like the feeling of having all the people that I grew up racing with, Troy, Gary, Laboose, um, Tom Dauber was there. like those people, Tommy Cable, all my friends that are racing now, like just the hugs and what they were saying to me in my ear is what meant more than, I don't want to say meant more because obviously money means the most, but that was the best feeling to have those people tell them, tell me how proud they were, how overdue I was, how they knew I could do it, you know, stuff like that, that is, that's the feeling that I always wanted. So that was the best feeling of winning the race. Very cool. Well said, my man. Again, congratulations. Thanks for coming on with us. I, uh, I don't even know if you've thought about racing next, but best of luck wherever it is that you're headed next. I don't know if it matters at this point, but just incredible, man. Thank you for sharing the story. And uh, just and so I was jacked. I thought I was jacked up for you Saturday night. Like, I think I'm happier for you now, like just hearing your take on it all. So uh, congratulations, man. Yeah.
Thank you. Yeah, great job, Steve. And if you're looking for somewhere to, to spend some of it, there's a $100,000 foot break race at Bristol Labor Day weekend, man. Um, I'll uh, see you there. I don't know if he was joking or not, but Jacob Rutledge messaged me about going to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was serious, but whatever you do, enjoy it, my man. Uh, congratulations. Next, next, week, next week, Jim Harrington Memorial. I can't miss that. 20 granders at Cecil. Yep, that's true. Hopefully uh, you cash in there as well, keep the streak alive, and um, maybe even um, stop at another McDonald's and get that extra nugget, bud. That'd be huge. <laughs> that means a lot to people like you and I. I know. <laughs> Enjoy it, Cisco. Congratulations, bud. It's awesome. Keep Thank it going. Thank you, guys. Today's show is also brought to you by ThisIsBracketRacing.com. If you are ready to take your on-track game to the next level, We've got the resources that can help. Visit thisisbracketracing.com today. In addition to resources designed to help you on the racetrack, you can find a lot of cool stuff on thisisbracketracing.com, including every episode of this podcast. So wherever it is that you're listening, just know that these are also available on thisisbracketracing.com. Jed and I are proud to partner with Bill Taylor Enterprises, that's BTE, here within the podcast. Neither of us, Jed or myself, are strangers to BTE products, services, or customer service. I've personally been using BTE transmissions and converters exclusively since 1998. Um, that's 20 years. BTE has quite literally powered every race, every championship, every round that I've won for my entire adult life. My point, they build products that I depend on. BTE builds products that Jed depends on. BTE builds products that you can depend on. Whether it's a complete top dragster or, or top sportsman power glide transmission, a torque converter designed for your specific combination, or any transmission component or bolt-on item, the folks at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed in today's ultra-competitive world of sportsman drag racing. Shop online at BTE Racing. Dot com. All right. Thank you again to Steve Cisco. If you weren't a fan of Steve Cisco or weren't aware of Steve Cisco prior to the weekend and prior to listening to this show, after that discussion, I think it would be difficult not to be a fan of Steve Cisco. I mean, the, he took a, he, he really celebrated. He took a day off work. He still hasn't deposited the check as of the time of this recording. I, I knew this coming in, but um, it's obvious after listening that that win will not change Steve Cisco one bit. It changes him in, in a lot of other people's eyes. It, it, it won't change him a bit. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Jed, all right, so we have spent over an hour, rightfully so, giving uh, attention to the SFG 1.1 million. There was a lot of racing, really from coast to coast last weekend, headlined by two premier events, one on each coast, one of which, near and dear to your heart, the most prestigious footbreak-only event in the country, and this year brought the biggest crowd you guys have ever had at WFC 14. Tell us about it. Yeah, Luke, uh, it was pretty amazing. Um, as we talked about, Ryan Gleghorn and I, uh, last week on the show leading up to this, so on the WFC preview we had a record number of pre-entries. Uh, pre-entries, I don't remember exactly what they were coming in the race, but they were like 325 to 330. And that was, you know, with 
with very few doubles uh, as a comparison. 10% of the crowd might have been doubled already before they got there. So we knew it was uh, it was going to push the record, which was last year at 484 entries, and it, it blew it out. Um, we could see the big crowd coming, so we changed things up a little bit. We opened the gates on Wednesday instead of Thursday. Wanted to get people parked, uh, opened up. We normally open up Thursday about noon. We opened up Thursday morning about 8 o'clock to get some racers in and start tech and get those things happening before our test and tune on uh, on Tuesday. I uh, had a big test and tune crowd, so we could see the gamblers race on Thursday was going to be big. Steve and I made the decision um, a week prior to the event that maybe maybe more than that, but going to change the gamblers races from $3,000 to win to 5000 not change entry fee. Just a little way of saying thank you because we knew this crowd was going to be big, and they did. They showed up big. Had 282 racers in our gamblers race on uh, Thursday, and uh, Luke, we don't the only time trial anybody would get would be test and tune. So we don't allow time trials. We don't allow double entries of any kind in that gamblers race or any gamblers race, and we don't allow uh, buybacks. So 282 single entered cars scrapped it out for five grand on Thursday. And when that was all said and done, a couple of first time WFC racers, which was phenomenal. Uh, Corey Griffith out of Ohio got the win over Cam Murray and Cam's from New Hampshire. So <clears throat> just, a, yeah, it just shows kind of the, the crowd was pretty diverse in, in geography and uh, it was quite large. So we're pretty excited about that. Uh, feeling like if you had to guess, Jed, what, what percentage of the field was first-timers? Like that seems like a rarity that you'd have two first-timers in the final. Yeah, it is very rare. Probably never happened before. And I guesstimated between 30 and 35% of the field was first-timers, which is uh, a lot wow. of growth, really, yes. you know, when, when you think about it. That, that's never happened to us before. So um, we felt like the, the 484 car record was uh, was in danger of being beaten and um, it certainly was Friday when um, we got our one and only time trial for the weekend in and first round was run we got 547 cars that went down 547 entries went down first round so it's pretty cool uh, reset the record there and um, when it all shook out lo and behold Corey Griffith the first time WFC race that won Thursday Gamblers took the 5K, or took the 10K uh, payday um, back to Ohio. Another win for Ohio with a win over the, the red hottest footbreaker in the country right now, Charlie Lockhart. Uh, so Friday Charlie, night, Corey Griffith's sitting there saying, This WFC thing is pretty easy. Like, I got yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, he was two for two, which is pretty darn impressive. And uh, yes, it is. What was more impressive than that? was that um, when I interviewed Corey, he said the first night, he said, I only foot break really one time a year. Uh, you know, he's from no box country, so he, he trans break races, but obviously knows where the bottom bulb is, knows when to leave. So he, uh, he adapted extremely well in a very talented field and got that big win and made it two for two for Ohio. So you know, we're, uh, we're thinking Ohio's uh, looking pretty strong here, doing extremely well, and that continued. Uh, Saturday, we reset the record, uh, went from 547 entries to 550. So uh, 
obviously that was a, another huge day, but without a time trial, we got things rolling along pretty well. And I was well ahead of Friday's pace. And then one of the most amazing stories of WFC history happened in the final round when Andrew Adkins beat Kevin Blevins. Now, this was the largest foot brake field in the history of the sport, certainly the largest at the WFC as well. And Andrew Adkins was in a primered Mopar. I don't know Duster or Damon. I don't know which one, but I'm going to say it was a Duster. Uh, <clears throat> he was going, again, 790s, and he came from Ohio. So now Ohio's three for three in the final round at the WFC. And the most amazing part of that is Andrew drove his 790s primer duster from Ohio to Bristol, 300 miles. Get out of here. Drove it on the highway. Look, uh, Nick Bauman told me, I think, because they were pulling around for the semis or maybe even the final. He said, you know he drives that car here, right? And I said, nah. You know, I, I responded in a way I couldn't respond on the podcast. And I said, this, that's, there's no way. It's going 790s. There's no way he drove it from Ohio. He said, yeah. He said, I've passed, he's passed me before on the interstate. I've been running 70 and he, he ran 80 going to a race. So he drove it here. So I'm thinking, how cool is that? I mean, this kid drove it. So they come around the next round or whatever. I guess that was in the semis because come around for the final. They pop the hood and there's water all over the top of the radiator and on the, the core support. And Luke, you know what that means because you raced in, in those times. Uh, they've got a bug sprayer. That's what I'm talking about. They spray good cool water on the radiator, get her cooled down for round next. Uh, and it has been a minute since I watched that happen. But when you drive it on the highway 300 miles, you've got regular water pump and, and belt and all those things because that's the only way to keep up driving it there in 90-degree heat at that. Change the tires, cooler down with a bug sprayer. It was straight 1980s, early to mid-1990s. I mean, it was going back in time. And this car was not – it was nasty. It was real nasty. Andrew drives it extremely well. Him and his father drove down Luke with a scooter in the back seat. <laughs> this Luke, is good. This is better. Luke, I want to make sure that we're not, I wasn't breaking up. They come down, change the tires, bring their bug, bug sprayer, and had a scooter in the back seat of the car with the windows down 90 degrees. And he outlasted the largest foot brake field in the history of the sport and collected $1,000 over Kevin Blevins. And Kevin was racing really well himself and come up a little bit short there in the final round. And then between, between Andrew Adkins and, and Cisco, like, I feel like there's hope. I've been saying for years that we've let the cost of competition get out of hand. Not necessarily, right? You don't have to keep up with the Joneses as evidenced by two of the biggest winners, one of the, the biggest winner of all time and two of the biggest winners of the weekend. It was unbelievable. It really was. And, uh, and Andrew, which we'll talk about in a minute, but he, he got down to six cars in Sunday's 10K. So wow. the guy was flat and nasty and uh, made his trip work out very well. But as we were getting in the late rounds, um, we knew we were ahead of a Friday schedule. We promised two gamblers races on the flyer. We try to get five winners every time we open uh, for a, a, a Colbert Racing Promotions event. So 
talked to the staff there at Bristol. We were working them can to can. We we were opening early and running the curfew every night. And we we knew if we made this decision, we were going to run the curfew. But the guys at Bristol were fresh and and very accommodating, and they said, "Let's do it, man. Let's let's make all the racing happen that can happen." So we opened up for another gamblers race. Uh, we got 192 entries into that. Another 5K gamblers race. We got to six cars. We battled a couple of little issues with the with the timing system, doing a couple of goofy things. wasn't major, but it took us a little bit to to work through it. And we got six cars on that, and we knew we could finish Sunday morning, which we did. And Jordan Wilhelm uh, got that win, another big final round for him at a Kohlberg event, and got the win over probably the winningest driver in WFC history. Guy's been to the winner's circle, whether a win or a runner-up, more times than anyone. That's Chris Plott. Great to see Cougar Daddy back out. He was in Tommy's Mustang uh, and was doing his thing extremely well. Got the runner up there to, to Wilhelm. And then uh, we proceeded to, to get into Sunday's last event. And um, Ohio now is four for four because Jordan Wilhelm is from Ohio. So unbelievable yes, that Ohio is four for four. And I, that's never happened for any state. I know there's a lot of talent in Ohio. There's a lot of talent everywhere. How that happens, I don't know. They were just obviously, and that's one of the states, I think, that was race hungry, that hasn't got to race very much. So pretty cool for them. And um, we had 495 on Sunday. Sunday's always down a little bit. It did fall off, but it worked out well because, you know, it probably needed to be a little smaller crowd with a, a late finish on Sunday. Kind of sucks for everybody. But uh, that 10K uh, was won by Austin Alvey, which uh, Austin's probably known more for uh, stock eliminator racing and that type racing. But that is beautiful uh, first-gen Camaro out there doing his thing. Austin's out of Kentucky, so he did end the uh, Ohio streak, but he only ended it by one win light because he beat Sean Pitts, and Sean's from Ohio. So Ohio was in within thousands of making it five for five showing that they came to race and uh, that was pretty darn impressive and one wind light and what less than 100 miles right austin alvey's from northern kentucky he ain't that yeah. far from ohio yeah i was gonna say i think he's from the louisville area or <laughs> right. somewhere up in there so yeah he can just about see ohio from where he lives so uh, it, it was pretty impressive by that area of the country come yes. out and do what they did and um and like you and, say predominantly a a, a no box area yeah, yeah, lots of trans breaking there. Uh, not a lot of foot breaking. Those those guys uh, came down, swap feet, showed out, and uh, all in all, Luke, it was a it was a great event. Um, you know, a lot of sponsor help. We had some last minute sponsor help that gave us a few more prizes to hand out. So we were able to get uh, over eighteen thousand dollars worth of prizes in the racers' hands outside of what was um, what was being given out in checks that's always a good time <clears throat> enjoy doing that and uh, the atmosphere was awesome uh, the pits were full uh, Steve and I had a had a drone had a guy come in with a drone on uh, Saturday and do some work I can't wait to get the the edited version of that uh, foot breakers absolutely filled the place um, it was full it was to capacity uh, for the normal pits and the outside pits out by the gate where I'm, I'm sure you've parked on trips there was uh, partially full, uh, which we've never done before. So 
just want to say thank you to to everybody that made it happen, man. It was it was unbelievable. So many happy faces, so many people excited to be there to race uh, that hasn't got to do much of that. Uh, there were some guidelines that we had to follow. We um, we kept people out of the tower. Um, that was important to Bristol staff and uh, important to us. Lots of people coming from lots of places all around the country. So we um, we made that rule. We put a booth out back for buybacks, testing tune, gamblers tickets, those type things. So people could go out behind the tower and handle that business. It worked out perfect. The racers were so willing to to abide by whatever guidelines we had. No complaints, uh, not people fussing about the changes that were made. It was just a very, very good atmosphere, and um, the race in action was insane, which was always a good time, and I, I couldn't imagine it going any better. The weather was absolutely perfect. However, Sunday afternoon, I guess mid mid to late afternoon, Luke, we had about a 10 to 15-minute kind of heavy sprinkle. It never really rained, and it never rained on our side of the finish line. It was all on the top end. Really? Never got That's Bristol for line. you, right? But it did make us 14 for 14 with rain. We've never had a WFC without some rain. So uh, the good Lord said, you know what? I forgot. I need to, I, I almost let that slip by me. I need to put a little bit of rain down <laughs> at Bristol because I want to keep my record perfect. And his record's always perfect. So he did that. And we, it took us about 20 or 30 minutes to make sure that was dry and ready. And then we were back at it. And that's the only wet stuff we saw so just a wonderful event and can't thank the sponsors and racers enough for, for all they did to, to make it so special awesome stuff man congratulations to all the winners congratulations to to you and steve pat on the bat pat on the back for another uh job well done and just continuing to to elevate the the level of the most prestigious footbreak race in the country. I feel like to this extent, Jed, like the, the show, like we've had so much big stuff, important stuff to talk about. I feel like the show's been a little dry. Give me the funniest moment from your vantage point from WFC 14. The funniest moment by far, and this, we, we didn't rehearse this. I want people to know you put me on the spot. So this is not something I was planning to say. The funniest moment by far was the, uh, a group from Florida. Um, led by Marco Lopez, um, those guys down around Orlando area. Look, they brought a smart car. And I think originally it was intended to just be a pit vehicle, but it turned into their race car, uh, somebody's race car throughout the weekend. And the smart car wasn't good. Let's, let's not even, <laughs> even try to think that that was let's, going let's to be not sugarcoat this. <laughs> no, it was terrible. I mean, I saw it go a half a second under half a second above. Uh, it did go dead on with a two one time. I think I have no idea how that happened, but watching those guys out there having fun, they had a group, a couple of guys go to the starting line with it. He did a big dry hop. They opened the doors, fanned him. This is during competition, you know, a, Maybe the opponent in the other lane, maybe the biggest race, they get the race all year. I don't know. But those guys just didn't care. They were having a blast. They were fanning the smoke out of the car. They were guiding him up to the starting line. 
and you know he was buying back it wasn't just getting out there with the entry and having fun they were buying back they were doing everything they could to make as many laps as they could and it was just, it was just showing the atmosphere of the race and that that people just coming there to have a blast and those guys made it as fun as they could and that the only other thing noteworthy uh not only other thing but only other thing i will mention is that you know ryan gleghorn called his lap at wfc 13 and i still today call it the most epic pass in the history of, of the event well he tried to upstage that by catching on fire on the racetrack and the vehicle that he was racing uh he came to a stop and and in the tower the officials were going whoa whoa whoa! he's he's coming to a stop he's got the door open before he ever stops and i'm thinking why in the heck would he open the door before he stops what what could be going on in there well fuel regulator uh broke something a fitting or a, a something a diaphragm something and it sprayed fuel where fuel didn't need to go and there was a small fire around the feet of ryan gleghorn so he caught himself on fire to try to upstage what he did last year, and it still didn't work, but it was a valiant effort. Well, uh, he, he set the bar extremely high last year, so I see the yeah. incentive to try yeah. to upstage that. But, uh, well, I mean, I'll steal a line of your own, Jed. This was from, from our race, from the Summer Door Car Shootout years ago. Guys, <laughs> if, if anybody is going to upstage that, we're going to have to get the ambulance on the racetrack. It's just not worth it. <laughs> yeah that's exactly how, the only way he could have got it done was for that we, to happen. we do not need the medical staff involved oh good stuff good stuff all right so <laughs> let's uh let's transition away from martin away from bristol all the way over to the other coast the california gold rush this is a race that i was as excited about as i could be from thousands of miles away just because I know that my friend, our mutual friend, Kyle Seipel has wanted to bring a true like full on production, big dollar bracket race to that area, right? Northern California for decades. And this in the oddest of times is when it all came to fruition with the California gold rush. Again, uh, I wasn't able to keep up on a on a round by round basis, anything like that, uh, from Sonoma. But it seems like the event was relatively well attended. Um, obviously, as to be expected, Kyle and the, and the Sonoma staff seem to do an excellent job. Uh, I've got some results, but I'll, I'll throw it to you. Just just general uh, feedback and feel from that event. I know you were further away than I was. Yeah, I was, and even further away I guess uh, mentally and, and from a visual sure. standpoint uh, with all I had going on but there was some communication uh, between Kyle and Peter and myself during the event and um, certainly I know that had to be extremely emotional for uh, for Kyle because obviously growing up at that facility and wanting so bad to see his brand it was an extension of the spring fling brand let's let's not kid ourselves. Kyle has learned a ton in promotion of the, the spring fling over 10 years. And he just extended that and took what he's learned and put it in his own event at the facility that he manages, uh, that he grew up at. So just super proud of, of what he accomplished there. Um, I know a lot of people stepped in to help from a sponsor standpoint, which you know hasn't happened a whole lot outside of what Chris Forsyth does out there. 
Um, so just happy for Kyle, um, all that he's battled and is still battling and to, to come up with this idea and, and see it to fruition is it's, uh, super special and really happy for him and, and his family and, and certainly his mom, Georgia, and, and his dad, Ted, uh, that had to be emotional for them to see something like that take place there as well. So congratulations to them guys, uh, or those guys, and, and really happy for them. On the track in Sonoma, uh, in much the way that Steve Sisko ruled the weekend and, and, and dominated the action at US 131, David Meyer was the Steve Sisko of uh, Sonoma. David Meyer, and actually David Meyer and, and Justin Lamb to some extent, Meyer over Lamb in Friday's $10,000 win race, uh, rinse, repeat, Meyer over Lamb in the final of Saturday's $20,000 win race, David Meyer putting on a show in the family dragster. And, and I caught bits and pieces of this, but my impression was this was a very um, emotional and, and, and needed win for David and his family. I don't know if any of our listeners are, are familiar with David. He's, he's come up from a racing family, always raced alongside of his family. I don't know the details, but I do know that, uh, that David's mother is having some pretty serious health problems. Again, don't know the, the details of that. This is one of the, the few times in, in, in probably his life that you'd see David at the racetrack, essentially uh, by himself, you know, without, without the help of his parents. And that win, those wins, you know, back-to-back wins on, on the biggest stage in that area for sure, um, had to come at a, at a very emotional time. And uh, my understanding of it too, like uh, the, the financial impact of it is not lost on them either. So it was good timing all the way around and just uh, proud of David and want to say that we're thinking of him. And like I say, David wins both finals uh, over Justin Lamb in both finals. Lamb driving his Superstock Cobalt off the bottom. Uh, similar to what we just talked about with Brian Cerruti in Michigan, rolled through the the no-box portion of the event uh, both days and then beat a handful of boxcars to advance to back-to-back final rounds. So Justin Lamb out there doing Justin Lamb things. Yeah, huge for David, as you said. Uh, back-to-back finals um, with all that he's got going on in his life and then doing it, Luke, over arguably the the – the most accomplished racer in the last several years, if not the the last decade on the West coast. And one of the most accomplished in the country in Justin Lamb um, had to put just a little more special feel on it uh, for David to know that not only did he get it done back to back times, he got it done over the same guy twice, which is hard to do. And that same guy happens to be one of the best racers on earth. So good for David that's really special and uh you know the bottom ball guys continued to show out Luke they had the the $25,000 gambler race the shootout if you will and uh six minute abs Chris Forsyth went to the final there where he was uh bested by the bottom bulb guy and Jeff LaSalle Jeff uh Jeff cracking the bottom bulb gets the win over Chris Forsyth and uh, collects a a huge payday anywhere, but especially on the West Coast, that's a super big deal. So, bottom bubbers making it work. Absolutely, absolutely. And then uh, the the weekend was uh, was incapped by another West Coast legend, uh, J.R. Learcamp, <clears throat> taking the Sunday ten thousand dollar win over uh, none other than Marco Paravalaris, another name that you would expect to see in a big dollar final on the West Coast. Interesting side note: 
Beerkamp won it in a Corvette Roadster, uh, defeated Paravalaris and the Dragster in the final. The round prior, they were still separated, Dragsters to door cars. Um, so the final round of the door car side, J.R. Leercamp beat none other than Marco Paravalaris, Marco driving the family roadster. So Marco double entered at three, ends up not getting a win. Leercamp obviously earned his medal throughout the day, but uh, you can't get much more difficult back-to-back opponents than Marco Paravalaris twice. So uh, congrats to both of those guys as well. Yeah, great job by Marco. Uh, as you said, J.R. Leercamp's a legend, and uh, they will definitely say that about Marco one day, that this kid is has uh, got a super bright future ahead of him. No doubt, no doubt. One other interesting side note from Sonoma. Um, they advertised coming into the event that, that face masks were mandatory, and to my understanding, were pretty vigilant about enforcing that throughout the event. It's actually the first, like, event picture winter circle photos that I saw where everyone was masked. And I don't know about you, Jed, I assume we're kind of in a similar boat here because we talked about this, but it's been a couple of months back. Everywhere that I have been to this point on, on this side of the country, several of the, of the events and or races that I went to um, issued mandates and had rules and stipulations in place pre-event. But once we got there, I haven't been to a race yet that didn't feel like going to a race in 2019. Like I've seen no facial coverings, no real impactful, at least differences in the way that anything's been run. Similar on your end or no? Yeah, very similar. You know, we had, uh, we didn't have a, uh, a mandate or ordinance that we had to live by at the WFC, but we certainly um, encouraged anyone that, that felt the need to, to wear a mask and, and, there were some staff members that were wearing masks, but it was sparingly. There, there was very few of them, especially in comparison or as a percentage of the crowd. So, yeah, it. other than outback um, buybacks and stuff and keeping people out of the tower, because the tower is typically a place where at Bristol they want to come stand behind the announcer's booth and just look at the look at the announcer screen as the announcer's doing it. And it's a great view down the racetrack. You get quite a bit of that at Bristol. That was going away and just traffic in and out of the tower where they're using the restroom and whatnot. But outside of that, it really did feel business as usual. And that's how it's felt pretty much everywhere I've been. Same here. So I thought it was interesting there that obviously the, the, the situation and the atmosphere a little bit different in California. Um, but at the same time, uh, vigilant about enforcing this. And I, my impression was that pre-race, this probably this this mandate, so to speak, may have kept some racers at home, which I think is kind of ridiculous. If I'm going to be completely transparent, like I'll just say, I, I get the mass thing. It's 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 a hindrance. It's kind of a pain, particularly outside in the heat. Like I get it, right? But it certainly appears that masks are going to be a part of our life for the foreseeable future. I don't know about everywhere, but it it kind of feels like it's trending that way. And I just, I don't, this has turned into such a political thing, Jen. I don't know where you stand. I don't want to get uh, what we can get into a debate here if you want. It's, I don't really understand the, 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 the thinking of, I'm not going, whether it's to the grocery store or to the, to this race or whatever, because I'm not going to be the one wearing the mask. I, I, I feel like a, 
it seems like, I guess you can find data to, to back up whatever you want to believe. Because I I've, know I've seen stuff where they say that the mask doesn't, doesn't uh, prevent the spread of the disease, whatever. But it, it seems by and large that the data is pretty overwhelming in the other direction. But forget that. Like if you don't, if you don't lean that way, if you don't believe that, like can we not at least respect the idea that there are people around us that do? And that feel more comfortable when you have the mask on. So if a mask is mandated, like how big a deal is it to wear it? I, I just don't see the, I don't see the big hang up there. Am I, I think I'm in the minority, but I don't, am I wrong? Look, I don't know if you're wrong or not, honestly. Uh, again, this is, I'm a flip flopper here. I've went through every emotion you can go through over these rules and regulations and mandates and ordinances. I'm, I'm sick of seeing them and hearing them. Um, I, I have a mask at work that I have to wear if I'm interacting with a customer or mm -hmm. whatever. But when we're around just one another employees, you know, we, we try to keep our distance and be safe yet. We don't wear masks to talk to one another. So I get both sides of it. I really do. I, I still haven't figured out the riding in your car by yourself wearing a mask unless you just like the way your mask feels. Um, I don't know who you're protecting or, or whatever in that. So I wish people would stop that. If I can say that, if you're one of them and you're listening, please stop because that's driving me crazy. And it's a short Just because ride. it makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Driving me crazy is a very short trip. So uh, just stop, please. But if you want to wear the mask when you get out, I'm all for it and I don't mind it. And I understand it. You know, I've heard so many things that it, it won't stop it, that, you know, it, it will stop it. And if you're talking to someone too close and, saliva comes out of their mouth and lands on you and then you wipe your mouth or you wipe your face with your hand and you you know i don't think anybody knows how we get this so i'm not 100 percent convinced that a mask stops it but if you got a rule where you got to have a mask on and it's a place that i frequent or that i need to visit it's not going to stop me i'm going to go and i'm going to wear a mask and if they say you got to wear a mask at the races, at this race or that race, and I want to go to that race, it's not going to stop me. So the mask isn't holding me back. I don't mind wearing it, but if I can find any reason not to, I'm, I'm finding it. So I'm on both sides of it. I know that's not what anybody wants to hear. Uh, that was a terrible answer, but that's just who I am. I'm sorry. I just wanted to touch on it because it's, it's obviously it's an odd world that we're living in, Jed. I just, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like there's far too many of us that are just, how does this impact me? Like, I feel like it's a courtesy thing. If it's mandatory and everybody else is wearing a mask, wear a mask. It's not that big a deal. Shut up about it. But again, just me. Um, NHRA news. And we'll close this out because we've gone super long. But, uh, quick recap. Last weekend, there was a Division One event up at Lebanon Valley. It was the second Division One event of the year. Just a couple of performances stood out to me there. Byron Warner, uh, Superstock winner, and uh, that backs up his brother Brian's win at Epping earlier this year. So the Warner brothers are two for two at the, uh, at the NHRA Division One events uh, to lead off this season. And another guy that's been in back-to-back -back finals at those two events was Supergas winner at Lebanon Valley. That's Justin Lopes. Lopes was the runner-up in Supergas up at New Hampshire. So he's off to a running start. It's going to take a lot. I think uh, if anyone's going to challenge Rusty Cook this year for the NHRA Supergas World Championship, but Lopes, obviously from Division One, hasn't had many opportunities and has made the most of those opportunities thus far. Jed, I wanted to close 
with the NHRA national schedule that resumes this week in Indianapolis. Now, it's, a, it's essentially a, a pro-only event, but it's the first time that the pros have been on the track for several months, obviously. This is the, this is the, the re-kickoff, if you will. In addition to the pro categories, uh, they are hosting Top Dragster, Top Sportsman, and a, and a JEG Super Quick event, which is basically a, a quick 32 for those of you outside of Division Three. So some sportsman action and, uh, and this is all going forward. I see, uh, as we're recording on Thursday night, I saw a lot of uh, social media posts from the pro teams out there testing. Um, this is going to happen this week. Now, with that said, the, the NHRA schedule is back-to-back, you know, kind of made-for-TV shows at Indy the next two weeks. Those appear like no question going to happen. I think it's fair to say that the schedule from there on feels a bit precarious. I, I think at this point, the feeling is that there will be some NHRA national event competition. It seems feels almost guaranteed that every event on the schedule may not be able to happen. And there's just a lot going on. Like I, this hasn't for whatever reason been made public yet. And I, and I, for whatever reason, John force racing has not issued a release and, and it, the, the people on the inside don't seem to be expecting a release, but my understanding is that the JFR has closed the doors for 2020. They will not be fielding cars in any events, NHRA events for the remainder of the season. The reasoning behind that, not completely clear, but they are not on the entry list for this week's event. They are not on the entry list for next week's event. Um, so that's a big hit. I mean, that's obviously John force uh, is and has been the prominent name in our sport for 30 plus years and it's going when when the action resumes it's going to feel weird no matter what it's gonna feel really weird without the force family there yeah we all definitely be different um look i i can't even imagine what the number what the streak is for john force racing at nhra national events um but it's long real long decades so this is going to definitely feel weird and um, hopefully this is not an indication of, you know, some sponsor trouble or no funding or those type things. I doubt John would use his own money to, to show up at the track. Um, I don't think that's how he operates, but so hopefully that's not an issue with funding. Maybe it's just, they just feel like it's best for, for their team and their situation to get through this year, what few events there's going to be, get it behind them and, and start fresh for 2021. Definitely. I'm confident. Yeah. I'm confident that there is a valid explanation for this. It's curious that they're not, that they're so hush about it. Like I, I don't understand what's going on. I don't think anyone does combine that just from an NHRA perspective, um, taking a look, I don't know if you've been following along Jed at all with what's happening with Bandemir in Denver, but uh, long story short, uh, Jefferson County, which is the county that the racetrack resides in, uh, the Jefferson County Public Health Department filed for a temporary injunction against the operation of the racetrack. Uh, this leads back to an event last weekend, July 4th weekend. Uh, I guess the mandate in the county is that uh, gatherings of more than 175 people are, are prohibited. Uh, Vandermeer had roughly 7,500 on, on hand for their big annual 4th of July event Saturday night. A couple extras come in. They, yeah, they yeah, you know, you, you can't police them all. Um, so obviously the, the county argues that they're not abiding by the mandate that, uh, 
I would assume the majority of, of businesses in the county are. Uh, Vandermeer, in return, argues that, hey, you know, we can't operate a profitable business. It's not realistic at the 175% maximum. Jed, I don't know the law. Uh, I know they were in court yesterday. I believe they were in court today. I have not heard a decision on this. I have, I have no idea what all goes into this. But just from what I've read about the situation, it doesn't seem to favor the racetrack. And why is this a, why is this a big deal, right? Because whatever your definition of temporary is, obviously this injunction is, is temporary. Now temporary could be a week. It could be a year. Like I, at this point in 2020, I have given up predicting the future, right? <laughs> yeah. But what's at stake here? Obviously the, the, the racetrack as a business and the local racers are effective and Vandermeer has a huge local following. Um, but I, bigger picture as you, as you broaden the lens here, uh, Denver is also the first traditional national event on this resumptive schedule after these two weeks at Indy, uh, August 7th through 9th, the tour, so to speak, is supposed to kick back off at Denver. So obviously a lot is hinging upon this court decision. And, and I guess the point that I wanted to make there is it, as I said in the open, the, the NHRA schedule, I think for the rest of the year will be week to week at best, which is different. You know, I mean, you've just never had a national event schedule that you you didn't have it set in stone coming in. Even so, to this point, everything that I'm hearing coming from NHRA, despite the fact that John Force and JFR is not going to be involved, despite the fact that this Bandemir thing is hanging in the balance, and, and I'm sure that there will be other uh, facilities on the schedule where they will have some similar issues, right, and, and hang-ups along the way. To this point, everything from NHRA has said, we are going to race we're going to run every race on our schedule that we are allowed to race at. Like they are going forward full steam ahead. And I don't know what to make of that. I, I won't claim to have any insight. This is not reporting. This is just purely speculation, but I don't think it takes much to read between the lines. I don't know specifics of the NHRA business model, but I kind of get the feeling that these races have to happen or that business is, is in serious jeopardy. I mean, you take off, you just shut off the faucet of revenue for a year. I mean, to this point, it's been six months, basically, for any business um, that's difficult to overcome. So I guess my takeaway here is that no matter how much we all tend to, from time to time at least, complain about NHRA as sportsman racers, I think it's difficult to imagine what our sport looks like without that major sanctioning body. So for that raise that reason, if if for no other, <laughs> I am rooting for these events to to go off, and that the powers that be find a way to navigate what is just such a variety of potential pitfalls along the way, and I, I think that just as a as a racing community, as much as we want to bitch and complain about NHRA, like we should all be rooting for success here in, in this 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 next month really seems very pivotal. Yeah, I agree, Luke. It's, it's definitely um, there's a lot hanging in the in the balance of uh, some decisions that are about to be made and these uh, injunctions that that are being filed. Uh, I mean, it's I mean, it's scary, really. I'm not. You know, I'm definitely rooting for Bandemir in this decision. I'm not. Um, I'm not really saying what they did was completely right, but I think most of these rules that are being put on entertainment venues have a 
the the people putting them in place have a lack of understanding this ain't like a group of 7500 people that were huddled you know these people are spread out um they you know who knows they probably weren't in groups of more than 25 people really when you think groups really huddled together um so I, I would like the people putting the rules in place to have a little better understanding of of what this looks like. Maybe they should go to a race or two and, and see what's going on before they try to shut people's business down because they had too many people there. Um, not, a, not a big fan of that. Bandamere needs to live by some rules, but I think 175 people is a little excessive to try to, to limit them to that. It, had it been a fair number, you know, NASCAR is allowing 5,000. Um, so had it been a fairer number or a more fair number, I'm not sure what word fits there, it, it probably gets adhered to, but the number was so ridiculous. They had to, you know, just open the gates and let them in and see what happened. That's what happened. It's a shame. I, I don't, I hope they don't get sanctions put on them to where they certainly can't hold their NHRA event or any other events going forward. So, um, I'm pulling for Bandamere for sure. I don't feel like I'm asking too much, Ted. Like I want to, uh, I want to not be concerned about my health and the health of my family. And at the same time, those concerns not destroy my business. Can we have both? <laughs> yeah. It seems, it never seemed like too much to ask, right? Yeah, no doubt. And anyone that's concerned about their health and, and don't want to be around a crowd of people, it's pretty simple. Um, what you do is when you get to the gate, you turn around and go the other way. And that way you're not affected. So I understand that, that we won't police it's ourselves. It's not that simple either though, Jed, because those we, decisions affect everyone. Yeah, we won't police ourselves to a high enough level, um, just as we've talked about in safety equipment in the race car. I mean, for some reason, the American way is do all you can do and get away with it up to the point where somebody <laughs> forces you to change it. And sure. that this is going to be no different. And it's going to continue to be a battle for anyone that's putting rules in place, whether it's for restaurants, hotels, um, you know, whatever. So racetracks, this is going to be a battle for a while. All right. On that note, let's wrap this up. We haven't had near enough fun today. Let's shout out, close out. Let's put a bow on this two plus hour episode. Epic episode with Steve Cisco. Um, where do we begin or where do we end? Well, obviously, uh, that, that's bringing us to, uh, to a close and um you know it's we got shouts coming up but uh want to want to thank people for listening and thank the people that support the show and certainly uh would love your feedback uh, hit us up on our facebook page the sportsman drag racing podcast facebook page is uh, is open and ready for you to leave your comments about topics we discuss topics we didn't discuss why didn't we talk about this why didn't we say this about what we did talk about whatever you got to say message us or just post it right there for the world to see. We couldn't care less. We want your opinion out there just like we put ours out. So reach out to us and let us know what you'd like to hear more of or less of or, or whatever. But uh, either way, we appreciate you listening. What you got for shouts, Luke? We haven't had near enough fun today. I mean, I, I wanted to do a top five, but like I said, we're, we got to be pushing two hours. So we'll have some more fun later. Um, <laughs> all right, so shouts. Shouts is, shouts is fun, right? Yes. I'll, I'll, let me first shout out the 60 pounds that went into Steve Cisco's trunk. <laughs> Round seven of the 1.1 million. I, I, 
I was like tapping my 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 head my headphones when he said that. I'm like, did I, there's no way that I heard that right. Did he say that he did that after sixth round? Yeah. So he did. Shouts to that 60. Like that that 60 pounds needs to be in, I guess it'd be Garlitz Museum. I don't I don't care about the car. I would just want the ballast. That goes in the museum. Shouts to Andrew Adkins. Yes. And that ride from Ohio to Bristol. I would assume that's not a quiet highway ride. And you said it's three plus hours, right? Yeah, 300 miles, yeah. Oh, yeah, 300 miles. Okay, I knew there was a three in there somewhere. Shouts, <laughs> shouts to the scooter in the back seat. That's epic. I love it. You just think, man, like, there's a scooter in the back seat. There's another set of wheels and tires. There's the bug sprayer. Yes. There's got to be a bag of clothes. Like, that oh, yeah. thing is full to the gills. Oh, yeah. yeah it's full. That's awesome. That's fantastic. <laughs> shouts to Marco Lopez and Smart Cars. I wish I, I would like to see some footage of that. Wish I'd seen it in person. Shouts to uh, along those lines. Shouts to half second breakouts. You don't see those every day. That's good stuff. <laughs> we didn't touch on there was uh, I think it was supposed to be three ten granders. It ended up being a ten and a twenty uh, after one day got rained out at Maple Grove. Shouts to my man Scotty, two hot bottomer podcast bump. Another for, former guest won the ten, runnered up the twenty, almost ran. Uh, rough shot over the weekend at Maple Grove. So shouts to Scotty the body. Scotty the body. Uh, hold on. In one in one episode, we have had mention of Scotty the body and six minute abs. That's got to be a record. <laughs> shouts to Chris Forsyth as well, and shouts to all of you listening, both of you listening, that uh, that are donning the mask inside the comfort and privacy of your own vehicle and driving okay. jet nuts. Yeah. And hopefully everyone listened closely to Cisco's rear and I want to get in one shout and this is definitely discussing his differential, but shout oh, to crunchy. crunchy rear end. Crunchy. Yes. <laughs> shout to crunchy rears. <laughs> that was so good. Uh, all right, guys, again, reach out to us. Tell us what you loved, what you didn't, what you need to hear more of or what you need to hear less of. But just reach out. As I said, go to the Facebook page and tell us. Or if you're a Twitter person, reach out to Luke. And I need some Twitter activity. Uh, Luke's got plenty of it, but he'll take more. But reach out to us on Twitter, too, if you're a Twitter guy or gal. Uh, Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. Uh, tag us, hashtag us, bag us, whatever you do on Twitter. Tweet us, but uh, just uh, get get our name out there and, and let us know what you're thinking so we can respond to it. I need more Twitter activity in my life. So thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Thank you, Steve Cisco. Can't wait to talk to you all again about some more racing coming up real soon. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. 
Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect. Led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is, at each event, there are 100 plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.